Okay. Well, um, today we're going to talk about community, and I, I forgot to change it on the outline, but the social aspect of the gospel. Not the social gospel, which has a, for those of you who might have heard that term before, has a lot of kind of uh, negative baggage, but baggage, not baggage. Uh, I did have a new outline. We're done with the es- eschatology. But uh, I do, we're entering into, what, our fourth week here now? Which means that you either are really in love with First Thessalonians or you're really tired of it. Um, and in reading First Thessalonians, you know, once a week for myself, a couple times a week, uh, I'm personally entering into the I already know this stage. So I have, to, I have to slow down. I don't know if, that, if anybody else has come across that phenomenon, but, or if you've uh, maintained reading it. But, so what do you think about 1 Thessalonians? Anything new on your mind about 1 Thessalonians? This week we're going to, yeah, like I said, we're going to talk about community. Next week we're going to talk about imitation and Paul's... Uh, Basically, like two chapters on how he's really awesome. I had a hard time reading it this week. Hard time reading it. Yeah, it's almost like what you said. I've been here. I know that now. I know. I, it's I, rough. It was tough me to get through the book this week. Yeah, this is where I would recommend if you have another Bible translation, read it. Read, read it because um, that's you know that just disengages your mind a little bit. Holly. Yeah, we actually won't get there today. We won't get there today, but that actually, it comes along the same lines of what we'll talk about today. I hope. It should be helpful. Children. Children of the day. Does anybody notice the familial language in the letter? We're actually going to talk about it a little bit today, but since Holly brought up children. Anybody notice that? Every chapter in Thessalonians mentions the word. Well, my, the English Standard Version is brother or brothers. But you could translate it as like brethren, so that that's a more male-female inclusive word. But um, and then in chapter two, Paul talks about being a father and a mother to them, and that's that's actually really important to Thessalonians. We'll find out why. But before we get there, so remembering a thing or two: eschatology, the study of end end of human history informs our life now, okay? And to put it real simply, we'll get to this, but the eschatology is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So, as we confessed in the chapel, the second article of the creed, the second article of the creed is basically the story of Jesus. In a nutshell, that's kind of what we think about when we say he preached the gospel or he had a gospel message. You're talking about the, the, the incarnation of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then oftentimes we just kind of stop it right there in terms of the gospel message. You listen to like TV preachers or listen to the Lutheran Hour, oftentimes people will just stop at the resurrection and not include the second coming of Jesus. And in fact, I mean, that's how a lot of these preachers just kind of preach. Because it's, you know, that's kind of the, the fundamental uh, point. However, Paul in Thessalonians says, you know, based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, you also have Jesus coming back. And that, that eschatology or that end time coming back then is actually part of the good news of Jesus. This means that we have something to live for, live towards, and because of that, we live, live now. So that's uh, um, so our life now, and then obviously beyond the grave, which I think most people kind of default to when they talk about the end time. Shirley? I also got when I read it that Paul was talking more from the, from the preacher. Yeah. Many of your preachers and stuff, there's a lot of them that preach from the head and from the book. And right, that's good. Knowledge. Really good. Yep. From this, where he was talking more, speak to the brethren, or, or speak from the heart. Right. And 
may know the gospel and you may may know the forthcoming of Christ and and the after but you have to know it here in your heart and not from the book. Right. So yeah, I don't for people listening. Shirley said uh, Paul's preaching from the heart. And that's actually true. Now, um, of course, we would want to make sure we don't have a false antithesis that the heart and the mind. I would say Paul is, is uh, preaching from a holistic perspective. But he is, he is preaching very like emotionally or, or passionately, which of course is hard when we read it, right? And this is part of the, the kind of the struggle when we read this over and over again. We do lose the passion of the language. Um, yeah, because I mean, I don't think we really think about Paul as being like a passionate preacher. We think about him as this kind of saintly guy who kind of kind of like us, but kind of not like us because, you know, I mean, he's like St. Paul. He's like this big, you know, big dude in the church. But if you do take a look at the Thessalonians, that might be something that you want to do this next week is look at the kind of emotion and how does that emotion come out and it mainly comes out in the form of his his uh, language brothers brethren again we kind of we don't even know what that means because we don't talk that way like I don't say hey sister it kind of sounds nice we might think I'm, I'm part of a you know a different ethnic culture if I keep calling you brothers and sisters um, that's the language of Paul, and in this circumstance, we'll actually see how important that is, actually. And it's important because it's a sign of this affection, this, this uh, love. Yep? Well, this is true. Yep. And in fact, that's what Paul says. Uh, but we'll just, let's just kind of keep rolling here. Um, so the, okay. So, yeah, so look for the emotion. The other thing, too, is Paul's desire to go see him again. I mean, he, he really wants to go see him again. So just kind of project yourself on Paul. Right, well, who are the people that you don't get to see a lot, but you really want to see them? And then imagine, well, this is kind of Paul is. And then you kind of get into it. Kind of role play a little bit. All right, so... Um, so, okay, so es eschatology is posture of hope. How does this kind of posture of hope affect the way the Thessalonians live? So turn to, to Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to spend a little time in chapter 1, but then also in chapters 4 and 8. And the reason why we're kind of skipping from 1 to 4 to 8 is because we're going to talk about imitation next week, and that's 2 and basically chapter 3, 2 and 3. Um, but I, I thought it would be easiest for us because when we think about how we live, we often think about in terms of like instruction. Like we think, okay, this is, these are kind of the way, you know, the five things to do for a happy life. You know, as much as as Lutherans we kind of rebel against that, I think that's a lot of our default. We just kind of just think about things we need to do in order to help us get through life. And Paul does that. He only does that, though, after chapters 2 and 3. But... So anyways, Paul actually introduces this whole phenomenon that the gospel affects the way we live. And of course, we all believe that. But let's just kind of show how Paul does that. So in verse 1-3, which is, is sort of like a, a kind of an outline in terms of the rest of the epistle, is that so you have um, the work of faith, which would be the gospel preaching, and then the Christian life, which would be the labor of love. And then also the eschatology, so this posture of hope. So they're all connected. They're distinct but connected with one another. We hear the gospel. We live this way. And how we live this way is in a posture of, of hope. And that comes again then at the closing of the introduction in verses 9 and 10. Different language, same idea. You turn from idols which would be then the gospel being preached, repentance. I don't know if we remember, repentance is a turn from one way to the other. And then uh, serve the living God, so a life of service, and then waiting expectantly for the return of God's Son from heaven. So, but in between these two th are verses 5 and 7, which goes to Christus' point. 
The gospel came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you have this gospel message received by the Thessalonians, which turned into a report on how the Thessalonians first became Christian and then lived Christianly. So you have a kind of a sandwich here. Uh, preaching of, of justification by faith, sanctification, hope. And then 9 and 10, same thing. Justification, sanctification, hope. In between, though, how that gets played out is the Holy Spirit coming in, the Holy Spirit, Word of God, Holy Spirit, small catechism, I cannot believe by my own reason and strength, but the Holy Spirit calls, enlightens. Okay. And then that gospel message, as it's received, then has this report that goes out to the surrounding regions. So what's, what's really pretty about this is that this gospel doesn't just reside in the individual. So, you hear about Billy Graham crusades, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't even say that. You hear about just crusades in general, and I don't know, maybe you've even seen this before. I know I have growing up, where we would have an evangelist come and speak at our church, and you would have people who would kind of become Christian, make this commitment to become a Christian. Um, but that understanding of their Christianity is very individualistic. It's between me and God. And this life that they live then is not, doesn't necessarily change radically. So they're kind of having it, their cake and eating it too. And they're trying to work that out. That's probably the hardest part of the gospel is, is how this, what does this mean when I believe this? But in Thessalonians, Paul makes this, this is part of the gospel. You believe this, this is how you live. In fact, the Thessalonians are an example of this. And so much of an example that it's like uh, this kind of uh, TMZ thing where all these people like hear about it. You know, TMZ, you know, the National Enquirer maybe. It's like what everyone's talking about. It's like holy gossip. Okay. So what we find out is the gospel isn't separated from the lives they lived. Um, I think sometimes we think about, hey, if we get the preaching of the gospel, now we've got to teach them how to be a Christian or how to live Christianly. But Paul, throughout the Thessalonians, this is all one of the same. This is all part of the same word, I should say. Uh, and, and so eschatology isn't separated from the lives of the Christians. So you have this outlook about the end times that's not separated from the present. And if you look now, so that goes along with the gospel. What I said earlier, the gospel and eschatology are not connected, but they are part of the same message. And as Paul plays out this eschatological or this, this end time business in chapters 4 and 5, he ends these sections in a very important way. So if you look at 4.18 and 5.11, these are kind of the end of the sections here of, um, therefore, encourage one another with these words. What does this mean? These words. What are these words? What he's talking about before. And so the question would be, what is he talking about before? <laughs> it would be, uh, in terms of like kind of your uh, structure, at the end of 18, encourage one another with these words. So you have to kind of look to see if, uh, where is the break? Where would the break be? This is before 14, so you got to look back. Where would be a, like a verbal cue that he's kind of starting something new here? All right, now, okay, you're, you're looking at the paragraphs maybe. Okay. Okay, good. Like other epistles when Paul says, therefore, you know it's... All right, excellent. Okay, and Holly said verse 14? Yeah. 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 And then in, you know, and now, verse 9, it's now concerning. Okay. All right, excellent. But we don't want you to be... Okay. 
See, now this is where I would encourage people as you reread Thessalonians, these are the things you kind of need to watch out for. Not to get too nerdy. I mean, uh, you know, you want to read it devotionally, but I think part of reading it devotionally is, is understanding that. So you're kind of all right. Um, Holly. Right. That's 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 where I would put it. And the reason why I say that is because at the end of chapter three, what do we find here? Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct your ways to you. You find out by reading that that sounds like a little benediction. Paul's putting this thought to end and starting a new one. So when he says encourage uh, each other with these words, he's talking about basically all of chapter 4. Now, you theoretically could say the whole book of Thessalonians, but kind of specifically, structurally, it would be all of chapter 4. Now, what is all chapter 4 about? It is about, well, I think my heading says, a life pleasing to God and the coming of our Lord. So what we find out is that the coming of our Lord is attached to our life right now. Okay, there, and, and so then if you look at chapter 5, um, verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build up just as you are doing. So you got the same language. So you kind of look at the next thing, and that would be then um, basically chapter 5 before that. Um, okay. You mean before this letter, before this this yeah, actual yeah. Thessalonians letter? Only that, uh, he might have. We don't know though. I mean, there's a there's a little theory that Second Thessalonians is actually written before First Thessalonians, but I mean, you could kind of make that argument. I, I wouldn't necessarily do that though, just because it's kind of inconclusive. Paul probably though, based on what he says of Timothy, this is probably the first letter you know, pre his presence. I mean, I'm sorry, post his presence. His presence was there. Now, he could have wrote something while he was, you know, preaching to them, I suppose, but that, that seems a little odd. Because, I don't know if you remember the story. Came to Thessalonica, got kicked out of the synagogue, um, and then he kind of got ran out of town. He got ran out of another town and another town. And while he was in Corinth, he sent Timothy back to, to uh, Thessalonica, and then Timothy gives us a report, and then Paul writes the letter. So this is probably his first letter, based on the report that he's heard from Timothy. Now, why did you ask that question? But it's, uh, it's always memorized, isn't it? What, what uh, the, the congregation has. Oh, yeah. So, okay, good. So, Paul, so, yeah, I would say that what they're, so when uh, Paul is asking, hey, you know, encourage with these words, yeah, he's talking about the, the, what's in the, the letter, but in the letter, he's also drawing upon what he's already talked about or he's already, he's already taught. So it'd be one and the same. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, uh, I'm sorry, is it 13? No, no, no. Uh, 8, 9, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Well, probably because they should already, yeah, they already know this stuff. But he's reminding them, he's encouraging them. So his written word uh, complements the spoken word that's already said to them. Does that make sense? Is that, I don't know if that helps, but. Oh, yeah. People have, uh, yeah, people back then had a lot, greater capacity to listen and remember. A uh, little tangent here, but um, we had a pastor's conference on Tuesday and Wednesday, and one of the speakers was a, a Jewish rabbi who converted to Lutheranism. And he, he uh, one of the great things that he, kind of, well, he, there's a lot of interesting things he said, but one of them was how the rabbis, the most important things the rabbis teach is n not written down. 
spoken. Um, and he says, if it's written down, it's published in-house, meaning that it's not, it's not given to everybody. But the whole, the whole point was is that this is oral teaching and listening and remembering and getting it right, which is very different. I mean, I mean it was interesting to see the men's kind of reaction to all this because uh, I, I sat at one table, the rabbi guy was sitting here, Pastor Foster, and after each session you would have three or four guys who would come up and ask, where can I read about this? <laughs> Like, can you tell me a book that would, you know, and, and it, the whole point was like, well, no, I mean, you just, <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Anyways, so a little tangent, but kind of related to what you just said. It, it was very fascinating, though, how uh, the uh, kind of the, 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 the Jewish teaching culture was so foreign to our Western way of learning. It's fascinating. But that, that actually does play a little bit into what Paul talks about is that um, so, so what you believe and it, uh, directly affects what you do. And I think a lot of us, whether we actually do it or not, you know, we, we would acknowledge that. But that actually is um, not always the case. Uh, first of all, so I, I brought up ethics. The word ethics. What, what does ethics mean? I think I just defined it. I, that's just from like Webster Dictionary, I think. Moral principles that govern a person's or group's behavior. And I, I think morals define the character. Well, ethics stress a social system. All right, so why did I bring this up? Okay. Paul's, Paul's teaching, since you believe this, you do this. Not as an obligation, but as an outgrowth of the work of God. Okay, so that's, that's the Lutheranese language. God still does the verbs in our life. Now, the thing is, though, moral life in antiquity, and this is where we're getting at between kind of the Jewish and our Western learning, and then just apply that to the back, back in the old days there. So the average Greek in Thessalonica, uh, there wasn't a direct connection between their religious life and their daily life. You could go down to the temple, make a sacrifice, um, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that you're going to live a certain way. It just means you've got to do this. Um, that kind of whole notion of, of morality and ethics belonged to philosophy. And for the philosopher, morality became possible when a person commits to living rationally. Uh, actually, it literally means when he comes to his senses. Um, okay. But the thing is, though, so this whole, this whole thing is very, uh, so when Paul then talks about, hey, God, Jesus did this, he's going to do this, so it means living this way right now, that, that's unusual. That's unusual for the people at this time. Okay, so that'd be something different. What is actually not different is the content of the teaching. Meaning, uh, the Greeks at that time, you know, don't kill. I mean, there, there was a lot of things. Try to do good. You know, that, this whole, that, that wasn't unique for the Greeks then. And you might, you might hear some of that now when you talk to non-Christians and be like, well, what's the point of me being a Christian? I can be a good person without being a Christian. And so, so Paul's, in dealing with the Thessalonians, uh, that's, that's very in play right now. Carol. Yep, okay, so this is real good, Carol. So this is, this is I was getting to the, the Jewish aspect here. Sorry, it took a long time to get back to that. What Pastor Foster talked about in this, uh, this whole, so people said, hey, you know, you became a Christian. And I think a lot of guys were like, oh, because the power of the Holy Spirit overpowered you and, and you became a Christian. And they're kind of like, well, of course you should be a Christian because being Christians are awesome. You know, I mean, underlying this whole kind of perspective. Like, so, so the rabbi, he, you know, used to be a rabbi. He still, I mean, he, he, he dressed like a rabbi. 
And, and, and so some of the guys were like, well, why are you doing that? You're a Christian now. Well, yeah, I would say it's just a false antithesis. Because what is he still, he's still meditating upon the Old Testament. I mean, he understands Scripture in its fullness. The other thing, too, though, was, is as, well, as since he became a, a Christian, too, he, uh, um, you know, in working with, rat, or, now he's Orthodox. He's not a Reformed Jewish. I mean, he was Orthodox. So he's got the little fingers in his hand. Yeah. In, in uh, interacting with other rabbis, he found out that they were like secret Christians. So the question was, well, why don't those guys just become Christian? Why? Well, why would it be hard for these rabbis to become like openly Christian? That's exactly right. I mean, and so there's no compartmentalization of their life. This, I mean, it saturates who they are and what they do. And so, so I think about it, and I mean, it was very interesting to hear him to just kind of casually talk about this. Because for me, I'm like, holy smokes, this is great stuff because this is what the New Testament is talking about, and we get to see it in real life, versus some of the things that happen in today. I think Carol describes something on, on a certain level in probably nine out of ten Christians, where you kind of compartmentalize your life and, you know, this is my faith life, this is my public life, this is my, you know, private life, family life. But for, the, for this, this Jewish understanding, and I basically for, I would say for the biblical understanding, it's all, and there's no separation. Barb. Laura, yeah, okay. Lauren Winter, yeah. Girl meets guy. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I think there's probably some legitimate questions you want to ask. And, and, and uh, Pastor Foster, you know, he does a lot of that. But just in this regards to the understanding of faith and life or you know, kind of faith and, and ethics. This, there's, this is so together, you can't distinguish. And th- this, this would run up, most especially in our society, this gets played out very publicly in what? Politics, yeah, exactly. In politics, hey, that's your political... So you'll have politicians who say they're Christian, right? But can say, oh, I, I, I got to put my faith over here, and I got to put my politics here. That is, that is antithetical towards, I mean, that's not a false antithesis. This is, that's a real antithetical situation towards the Bible. Now, uh, granted, you've you got to be pragmatic, I guess, but I, I just have a problem, like that, that's a rationalization for me. And that's why I, I'm kind of a firm believer that Christians probably can be politicians, but I think they probably are just one-term politicians. Because as people really live their Christian life, I think that would run up against the public life a lot. And people would be like, get that guy out of here. Well, and the reason why I say that is because you actually see this in Thessalonians. Let's, uh, I don't know what page it's on, but it's not, living as community, the gospel is for us, not only me. Um, so, so, okay, so what Paul does is you live this way because... Not because to follow rules, but because God is active in your life. This is the will of God. This is God doing something in your life. So these, on the surface, hey, okay, let's not be sexually immoral. Let's marry and let's not commit adultery. There is a lot of, lot of non-Christians who will say the same thing. I mean, even like, a, you know, like an, an atheist could say that. But for Paul saying... Okay, this is not about following rules. This is God actually working in the life of... So, so all this is put on a very, very huge kind of, yeah, cosmic scale that you're, you're actually enacting the will of God in your own life. Which then gives, a, you know, it saturates itself with meaning. All right, that, okay, I just wanted to get to that point because that, 
that, that translates then into how we live to one another. Nancy. Well, I was just going to say, I think because the United States is a big country and the people must travel much and all that, we tend to confuse culture with the living of the Christian life. Right. Um, I know I've seen in Africa there are a lot of Muslims who face the same thing as a lot of the Jews. Right. They don't dare openly admit you're a Christian, and at least unless we have a good escape plan, because you're yeah, right. really. But also, there are certain um, groups in Africa that have um, what are Christian groups, but things like called people of the book, where their form of worship is somewhat Muslim. Okay, they can pray on mats and all that, right. but they're Christians. Now some, especially very Bible Belt type people, think sure. this is terrible. Okay. But the thing is, it really is how they're living their lives and are they following um, the gospel? Do they have hope in Jesus Christ and all this? Right, right. This outward form of worship. Yeah. But we tend to confuse our cultural right. pinnings with faith. Well, I, okay, so that, that's very analogous to what happened at the pastor's conference. Is that they were saying, well, why? They weren't saying this consciously, but the subtext was, well, why don't, why don't you be like us? Because this is what being a Christian means. Uh, okay. Right. Well, you can see there's a lot of problems with that, right? I mean, I look around the room and I'm like, I don't know if I want to be here either. <laughs> Anyways, that's, I'm teasing. Being sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm not cynical. Anyways. No, no, but, but this, is the real, this is the reality of our life together is that the gospel... Uh, you, you can't just tell people, hey, just be like us. Especially when you look at you and you're like, okay, this is not, I mean, this is kind of silly. Or, you know, you say you believe in the Bible, but it doesn't really look like, you just kind of look like everybody else. What, what's going on here? And, and so that's, this is where Paul talks about it, is that, um, so, uh, again, as we read the Bible, this would be another thing, I think I might have mentioned this. I can't remember. But as you read the Bible, Paul is writing to, to who? Or to, to what kind of... Who, who are, who are, who's the receiver here of this epistle? Christians. Christians. With the S, the positive. And not just Christians in general, but a specific group of people. The, the Thessalonians. So he's writing to a community, and he's telling the community to be this way. Oftentimes when we read the Bible, right, we always kind of incorporate it very individualistically. And so we think about our behavior as individuals. Paul, that's part of it, but it's, it's part of the community as a whole. And so that's where things really start to come to head for the, the Thessalonians. Is that, so when Paul, so again, so he's teaching them as a brother. So where does Paul put himself? Inside the community. Okay, this is different than other letters, especially like, uh, I think 1 Corinthians is another one. I don't know if you guys remember 1 Corinthians, all hell's breaking loose, and it's just awful. And it's, Paul's mainly talking about as a father, like, all right, daddy's shown up. All right, you sit over there. Stop touching one another. You get in a timeout. You head up to your room. I'm taking care of business here. Paul actually, in this circumstance, he puts himself as a brother and says, hey, we're doing this together. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a very important distinction than some of the other uh, 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 letters that he writes. You know, although he does talk about his being a father and a mother, again, that, that, that's not, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with being a pastor. I mean, so, so it's uh, metaphorically speaking. Okay, Holly. Part, yeah, part of, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah, so why would he be going into that? Well, because sex has community effects. And he actually talks about, so you don't offend who? Your bro Yeah, so he's not talking, I mean, okay. He's primarily talking about what's happening in the community. Not, you know, not a Christian shacking up with a, I don't know, a Gentile or whatever, like a pagan. Um, and so, actually, so this is really important. Because as Paul talks as a brother, this is getting very radical now to the Greeks. Because they're not your brothers. They're not, I mean, they're not blood relations to you. 
And so I have these quotes here. So the average Joe in Thessalonica, this would come as a great shock. And you have two people who, uh, uh, oops, these are, uh, uh, you know, philosophers at this time. Lucian of, uh, uh, so their first lawgiver persuaded them that they're all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once and for all by denying the Greek gods by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Therefore, they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. That, so this is not a good thing. Or this is a radical thing to call, your, to call someone who's not your blood relation a brother and sister. And then actually live like it. Holy smokes. What's going on? These people are weird. Um, now the thing too about, oh, I think, we, yeah, we get to that. Well, hopefully we, we'll get to that. Uh, oh, then this last one. This one's really a uh, kind of a scathing thing. They recognize each other by secret marks and signs. Hardly have they met when they love each other. Through the world uniting in the practice of veritable religion of lust. Indiscriminately, they call each other brother and sister, thus turning even ordinary fornication into incest by the intervention of these hallowed names. Such a pride does this foolish, deranged superstition takes in its wickedness. Yowzer. Okay, so what we kind of consider as, ah, hey, that's real nice. Hey, your brother and sister, right? These, these actually people took it seriously, and they actually lived like it, and it caused scandal. Now, okay, we're going to get back to what Holly said here, but the quote here, though, just to... Um, Veritable religion of lust, indiscriminately what they call, okay, so turning even ordinary fornication into incest. I mean, we kind of like ordinary fornication. That, well, what's going on there? That, that's not good. But we'll come back to that. All right, so, and then you have this Christian apologist who kind of re replies to this. He, he says, it's true that we do love one another. In fact, a fact that you despot, deplore, since we do not know how to hate Hence, it's true that we do call one another brother, a fact which rouses your spleen. Because we are men of the one and same God, the Father, co-partners in faith, co-heirs in hope. All right, uh, I'm uh, not sure if this is actually in reference to the Thessalonica document, this uh, early Christian apologist, because I, I couldn't figure out where he's from. But um, he's he, he, echoing Thessalonian language there. Co-heirs in faith, I mean, co-partners in faith, co-heirs in hope. That, that's from the beginning, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, so now, so we're talking about a community, and these pagans who are becoming part of the Christian community are entering into this community that is what? Really kind of hardcore. Hardcore in relationship and in love, brotherly love, Philadelphia, by the way, but, um, but it's carried out in community. So you can't just join, you can't just become a Christian and live by yourself. Becoming a Christian becomes being part of this community. Krista. I said, I think uh, <clears throat> in brotherly love, then there is a, um, a kind of uh, community where you just can tell the truth. Um, that you just can say, oh, you know, I really don't like what you are doing. That's right. If, if, uh, there is love and forgiveness. Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. And understanding. Yes. Yeah, so this is not a perfect place. I mean, that, that's kind of, well, that's kind of obvious. Once you join the church, this isn't perfect. Um, and in fact, Paul brings this up at the end of chapter 5, where... Um, Verse 14, well, I, I'm sorry, well, it starts at verse 12, but I'm not going to, I'm just going to read. So, be at peace among yourselves, which means there must not be peace at some times. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or disorderly. Yep. Um, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Um, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So he lays out all this, this uh, kind of nuts and bolts at the end because 
even though it sounds really nice about, hey, leaving your old pagan life to becoming a Christian and having brotherly love, that sounds all real cool. There's a lot of like hard work that you got to do in order to make it work. Forgiveness, understanding, telling the truth, stuff that family do, well should do just normally. But in public life, right, you have this kind of civil... I know I don't like you, but we're going to pretend that we like each other to remain civil. You don't, well, I mean, you don't really, you know, like do that at like a Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, be civil. But if you're off by yourself in the living room, trust me, <laughs> that, that ain't going to happen. You know, or, or once the kids go to bed. All hell breaks loose between your brothers and your parents and all that. So, okay. All right. Um, all right, so, so what Paul is getting at is that your life will change. I mean, when you become a Christian, you can't, you can't stay the same. Your life will change, your relationships will change, and when your relationships change, that's when conflict comes about. Because what you're saying is that this is the most important thing in life. And, and to do that, that's hard. So we go back to Pastor Foster. I mean, this is the reality. You have a whole, uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the Jewish people, if they become Christians, they're becoming part of what? The enemy. I mean, these are the Christians, forced baptisms, I mean, the whole nine yards. I mean, which then puts in perspective Paul becoming a Christian and then becoming a pastor. I mean, imagine the distrust of all that. I mean, yeah, they're, yeah, they're renouncing their family. But what the church should say is, you got a new family. But oftentimes, it's, you're just kind of left off by yourself. Oh, man, it's scary as all get up. I mean, I became a Baptist. I mean, I came from a Baptist becoming a Lutheran. That was scary enough, but I, you know, I both, I mean, I still had the same Bible. I still became, I mean, like I didn't have to like radically change, but it was still hard on my family. I mean, my family felt like I had left them. But I mean, just imagine, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's therapeutic, in fact. Oh, hey. Um, okay, so I have, a, I have a few quotes here from people who uh, became members of St. John. Uh, okay, so uh, how is this part of the gospel? Young people don't know how to have community. I, uh, I actually should have switched those headings. So this should go under the broken homes, broken relationships, individualized electronic relationships. So those quotes belong in there. I, I, so... Um, I have, there was a, there's some people, I'll just leave it very general, who said, we just want to be a part of this place. They, they can't articulate anything besides, you guys love one another, and I want to be a part of it. Uh, another one, every time I come, I feel like I'm special. I feel, well, and then I could extend the quote a little bit longer. I feel like I'm a rock star. I thought it was a little bit over over the top, but this this so okay. So the first one was from a couple who said, uh, "Well, all right." So, anyways, I'll just yeah. We'll just, I don't I don't really want you guys to know who these people are, but um. So so the gospel transforms lives, transforms the community. People notice it. Now, for these people. They don't have this great kind of connection like the Jews or, 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 or like Muslims. They are these isolated people who don't know what it's like to have a community, but see a community living and then want to be a part of it. Uh, one of the interesting things about this Pastor Foster guy, again, a little tangent, but apropos, I think, to this topic. He said that, um, so in a sense, he kind of has two congregations. He, he's, he's, he's in Kentucky, 
of all places, uh, the bastion of Judaism, right? <laughs> but he actually has uh, Jews who are Christian or becoming Christian who travel like 90 minutes to two hours to come. To, and, uh, and one of the things was that he finds out that's interesting is how, and they actually come on like Friday night, the Shabbat, uh, the, the Sabbath. And so then he, and then he gets up on Sunday and dresses. I mean, he has a service, you know, follows the hymnal and all that. Um, is how the Sunday morning crowd, they start showing up on Friday night because of, of the actual community aspect of it. Because this Sunday crowd doesn't know how to, they, they've just never had that in their life. They might have had, so you have certain families. So this is, this is where we kind of have to kind of help ourselves a little bit and think critically is that a lot of our families are Christians. So we might have an extended family of Christians. And so we might have a very positive family experience. I mean, we, we, have, the, you know, we have our Uncle Louie and all the other strange things that happen. But overall, it's pretty positive. And they're all Christians. Um, but, you know, you have to think about, well, why is it positive? Is it because of, of Jesus or is it because of your family? So, so I think that's, that's part of, the, part of the, the struggle for us is to kind of diagnose the situation. But, but what he said, though, about the Sunday morning crowd is you have people from all different walks of life. It, it, it's a university town in Kentucky. I can't, I can't remember what it is. No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's like University of Kentucky at whatever the town is. It's not a big school. You, it's one of those, you know, Eastern Illinois type of places. Uh, so you have people who, who basically, they might have been raised in the church, but their kids don't go to church anymore, or, you know, you know they, I mean, all hell's broken loose in their life, and they're still coming to church, though. And then they see this group over here, who's willing to travel two hours to come to church to be together. And they just, they don't get it. Because church has always been something you do, what? Sunday. Sunday morning. You don't spend your rest of your week thinking about going to church. Where these, these people who travel two hours, their whole entire week is geared towards making this two-hour trip. I mean, holy smokes. I mean, it'd be like traveling to Madison every weekend for me to go to, go to church. Holy smokes. It's not a convenience factor. So, um, why did I bring that up? Oh, oh yeah. So, so you have. So, what he found out is that he said these young people don't know how to have community. So they come to college, they they just don't understand it. They don't know what it's like to be in community. But once they are in it, they they find something that they, that they can't go without. And so, uh, I asked Pastor Bruzek for a couple quotes. But he said, you know, what I should tell you is every now and then a 12-pack of beer shows up on the expense report. <laughs> um, no, he just said a 12-pack of beer. Um, and then also one of the things was is that he, uh, and I actually, yeah, um, he's found himself to be more like a father as he's gotten older. You know, because he's getting old. I don't know if he did that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, no, I, I would personally admit to that, yes. I mean, I mean I'm sorry. <laughs> Seeing him as a father. Uh, and then, and for, for whatever reason, like I'm the brother of <laughs> the pastoral staff. And, uh, and so that's all part and parcel of the family aspect of, you know, what we're, I mean, what Pastor Brzezik and I are trying to do at St. John is that you have real life. So all the broken relationships, all the nonsense that happens in life, but saturated with faith, love, and hope. Uh, and what, so what we find out, though, is, is that um, people say that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's Jesus alive in a community. That's the hope of the second coming of Jesus alive in the community. And so... Um, that's been really surprising for me as a pastor because I don't think I consciously thought about, well, like uh, the effects of like how one lives in such a drastic 
I'm just, just being me, you know, I'm just, I'm just being me. Um, and then people say, that's inspiring. And you're like, if you only knew, then it wouldn't be inspiring. So I maintain the smoke and mirrors. So people don't see the real side. Just kidding. Now, okay, so then that gets all translated. I'm going to stop there because we run out of time. But so how it gets that translated then is in terms of like the sexual relations and then the brotherly love of the rest of chapter four. <laughs> all building up to that point. Um, and, then it, and then it goes back in at the end of chapter five also. Holly. Right. People who don't have it are like, you know, there is joy there, and I want that. Well, that's exactly right. And I read in uh, the chapel this morning. Uh, well, here, let's just, uh, hopefully if you have your Bible still open, I can just read it. Okay. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul's not, so that's like, you, you got it already. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. So, yeah, that, that echoes what Holly just said, is that the Apostle Paul is saying you already have this living in you. Be encouraged to do it just to stay the course, to do it more and more. And when it, more and more, that means not just simply in quantitative yeah, qualitative. Just this isn't a cur that's just a way of writing. Keep on doing this. You're doing great. It's very encouraging. I think we have a tendency though as as sinners to be like, I'm a I'm a damn sinner. Don't don't talk about me. But I, I think at a certain level we because when we talk about ourselves, we always talk about ourselves, which is self centered. But Paul, when he talks about himself, who is he talking about? Yeah, Jesus. So that, that's well. That, we'll talk about that next week when when Paul talks about imitation. They're like, how in the world can he do that? Well, it's related to this. So, any other questions, concerns, comments? Oh, you can read the rest. I'm just gonna keep rolling. I don't know. Oh yeah, what does this mean? I, I got lazy and I just quoted two things from a. Very nice article. Self-explanatory. All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.